It's just after 10 o'clock here on Nine Hot Radio. Before we kickstart the movie hour, I thought we'd stick on this song uh, from the Sweeney Todd soundtrack to give you a little bit of a flavour for the movies. You see, in my head, I hear that dramatic music every time before I speak. <laughs> <laughs> it's the perfect way to start the show, and a bit of blood and guts, courtesy of Tim Burton. Yep, that was uh, my friends from the Sweeney Todd soundtrack. If you didn't recognise the voices there, it was Johnny Depp and Helena Bottom Carter. And singing very well, surprisingly. Yeah, it was just we were just talking about that scene. It was on Channel 4 last week. Uh, taped it and watched it a bit a few days later, and I thought, am I going to get through this? Because somehow I'm not a big fan of musicals. The last music I'll watch was Mamma Mia, which was... Yeah, that would scar anyone for life. Which was the, a low point in anyone's life. <laughs> and uh, so, no, got through it. It was, it was really, really good. Recommend it, it to anyone. Yeah, absolutely. It's a terrific film. And, yeah. It's good to be back, I suppose you think we should say. Yes, uh, last week uh, the weather, uh, articulated lorries, everything conspired against us and we took the week off. Kind of Unintentionally, yes. Yeah. So we're back with the literal bang and we're going to kick things off with the UK's top ten films. Yep, may as well dive straight in. At number ten we've got Machete. Which is the new film from Robert R Rodriguez which actually started out life as a trailer in the middle of Grindhouse because there was uh, the project between him and Quentin Tarantino where Quentin Tarantino made Death Proof and he made Planet Terror and there's some made up trailers in the middle and um, basically it's it's a story of a vigilante played by Danny Trejo who as the title suggests is good with a machete he's looking to bring down the corrupt senator in America played by Robert De Niro and it's a kind of you know, knowing pastiche of exploitation films and it, it's probably more fun than Quentin Tarantino's because Death Proof is rubbish but um, I'm not the biggest Rodriguez fan because I'm not really big on Sin City. Yeah, it was um, it was strange that this this got made because it was deemed to be the best thing in Grindhouse, even though it was a fake trailer. <laughs> um, I mean, Planet Terror's not bad. I mean, it's got mm. a kind of John Carpenter score, which we'll be talking about later, and Planet of, and it references um, Planet of the Vampires, which is a very important '50s B movie. But there's not much else in there. Yeah, it's. Um, and I think it's apparently features one of Robert De Niro's worst ever performances, which, after the Rocky and Bullwinkle performance I saw, uh, would take some down. So if he's managed to get yeah. worse than that, I'll say fair. Yeah, although, <laughs> I, although I made the mistake of watching The Deer Hunter again this week and just forgotten how much of an awful film that is, and he's on autopilot for all of that. Really? Yeah. Ooh, controversial. You like The Deer Hunter? I do. Mm, this might be the end of our marriage. <laughs> On-air marriage, that is. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, the first hour, you, you kind of think, okay, we've seen the wedding, let's just, let's get to the Vietnam and the old uh, Revels advert, but it's... Uh... <laughs> yeah, the Revels advert is better than anything in the film, believe me. <laughs> okay, well, I think we'll move on yeah, before we, before we, we fall we, out. Yes. Skyline is at number nine. Which is, you know, dumb derivative, it's got good special effects, but not much else. It rips off everything from Cloverfield to War of the Worlds, and, you know, now that Monsters is coming out, there's no reason to go and see it. Yeah, it's uh, it's one of the ones I've been meaning to say, but uh, fate has conspired against me, and I'm taking that as a sign to stay away from the film. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, number eight, we've got Jackass 3D. Which you know is 3D in what 3D was used for. It's it's you know it's it's gimmicky for the sake of being gimmicky. But the problem is that it just doesn't have a story, and it is in the end a bunch of middle-aged men making loads of toilet gags. Yeah, if you want to save yourself the money of I think it's about nine pounds, eleven pounds, wherever you go for a 3D film. Just sit and watch YouTube. Just type Man Falls Over into YouTube and sit and watch that for an hour and a half. And yeah, I mean, I'm sure the polystyrene hand clip is on YouTube already, so you could just watch that over and over for 90 minutes. That's a good point, yeah. They've noticed there's more and more films creeping onto YouTube. Maybe you shouldn't say that. I don't know if that's legally allowed to say, but if you, they're all split into, like, parts of, like, a blocks of 10 minutes each. Mm -hmm. So you could, in theory, watch the films, especially ones like this, where... I don't really think it's needed a cinema trip. A tri cinema trip isn't needed for this one, I wouldn't have thought. No. Um, so... Um, a DVD one, or wait till it's on Channel 4 in about three years' time. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, on a double bill with Sweeney Todd. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we've got we've got clever violence and stupid violence. Uh, we've got number seven, which is the girl who kicked the hornet's nest. I know, I'm aware of the book series, but I don't know anything about the plot. It's not really come. Across no, uh, my yeah, I'm, I'm not familiar with uh, with the books either. It's the final part in the adaptation of the Stieg Larsson Millennium trilogy, the first instalment of which is currently being remade by David Fincher. Uh, starring Daniel Craig and Rooney Mara, Mara who is uh, the main kind of female character in the social network. Now, by all accounts, the first one, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, was very good in the sense that it was a kind of a very nasty, gritty crime thriller. And the second sort of dropped the ball with being more televisual. And I think this is a part, partial return to form, and it does have, um, I think it's, her name is Lisbeth Sander, or Elizabeth Salat, something like that, uh, dressed up in the full goth gear with the Mohican, and that is pretty good to behold, and certainly the remake is going to struggle to get as good a cast, but I'm, I'm not sold on going to see it, because it still looks a bit televisual. Yeah, it's, it's a strange one, because they've, they've literally churned these out really, really fast. <laughs> well, I think I think they were made simultaneously. Yeah, but uh, even like the, there's not been like a, a year's gap. Like that, it tends to be normally just like yeah, time for another one, crack it out. Uh, and I said you're going to get a, a big sense of deja vu over the next couple of years because I say the American version are going to come hit the cinemas, aren't they? So yeah. Be like, have I not just seen this? So literally this time next year we can just replay this this review. <laughs> <laughs> well, saves a lot of work. At uh, number six, we've got Despicable Me still hanging in there. Yeah, it, it's been around for ages. I mean, it's a perfectly fine but slightly derivative animation, which we'll come on to in more detail when we review Megamind towards the end of the programme. I mean, it's kind of, you know, it looks a bit, it looks okay. I mean, the animation is technically brilliant, but mm -hmm. um, it's just not something that grabs my attention. It's one of those ones from watching the trailers and the clips that I've seen um, on other TV shows and YouTube and stuff like that, that it is... Um, it is really funny for, um, I'm like 26 year old, I'm finding it a bit funny, so I'm wondering, is there going to become a time where animated films aren't aimed at kids? And they have to be, well, have to be aimed at adults, because a lot of these jokes will sail over their heads. It's going to be, it's going to become harder and harder to do, to do both things, like what Shrek did in Toy Story, um, to, to hit both audiences. It's very interesting you should bring that up, because when we come on to Megamind, which is a DreamWorks production, which, and of course, DreamWorks made the Shrek series, mm -hmm. it's interesting that they're, their approach to animation is very much kind of, you know, appealing to kids on one level, appealing to adults on the other. I and mean, I don't want to kind of jump ahead to the review of Megamind, but I think you've, you touch on something very pertinent there, which is that a lot of animated films are being made more with the adults in mind and then kind of offering things as a sop to the children. Mm -hmm. But we'll come on to that later in the programme. Right, okay. Um, at number five we have The American, which seems to me George Clooney's got his eye on an Oscar. Um, I haven't heard any buzz about it, I mean, still, uh... It just, it seems to me it smacks one of those films where they think, right, well, he's done his Oceans series, he's done his big blockbusters, things like, a bit like when Will Smith turns out a film like The Pursuit of Happiness or Seven Pounds, and it's like... Pursuit of boredom. <laughs> yeah, it's like basically it's saying, right, I've, I, I can make lots of money, but I'd love an Oscar. I'd love, I'd love everyone, I'd love my colleagues to pat me on the back and say, well done. Yeah, I mean, uh, Seven Pounds is entirely a film in which all the characters are on screen going, give me an award! That's a terrible film. Yeah, horrible, you know, jet. It felt like it was four hours long. I think it was only like 90 minutes, but it did. Yeah. Anyway, we're sidetracked. Um, Ameri the American, which is the new film by Anton Corbin, who made Control, which was the Joy Division biopic, which is great. I mean, it's interesting as a visual exercise, and it is good to see George Clooney in darker roles, because I'm, I'm kind of agnostic about him, and I think he's, you know, a smart guy in terms of his acting ability and his choice of films. But when he does political stuff like Michael Clayton and Good Night and Good Luck, which I'm not the biggest fan of, although it's, it's technically proficient, mm -hmm. I think he kind of gets a bit like Oliver Stone and just starts lecturing. And I think that 
it's, I mean, the Americans is essentially a throwback to the kind of 60s and 70s man-on-the-run thrillers where you've got, you know, a foreign agent hanging out in a location which he doesn't really understand. I mean, it's, it's kind of riddled with clichés, but it's very stylish. My advice would be that uh, maybe catch this on DVD, but also go and rent The Passenger, Michelangelo Antonioni's film, to which all these man-on-the-run thrillers owe a debt, because that is a terrific film. Yeah, it's, um, I'm, I said, you mentioned Matrix Clayton there, I did, it's one of those ones that it was just, it, it just sort of, washed over as it didn't really have any f major effect on us. I was like, um, I, can't, I couldn't say what the buzz was about. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It was just like, it's, a, it's an okay film. It's, it's kind of like reading a John Gresham book. It's like, ah, okay, that, that ticks the box in that area, blah, blah, blah. And it's just very, I don't know. It, did, it, it didn't seem as, because I watched it, I think, because it had so much buzz behind it, but nah, didn't, didn't get it. Yeah. Uh, number four, we've got Judith. It only exists because Hangover took money. Hangover 2 is already in post-production. It'll be out, I think, next June. Can't be bothered, to be honest. I mean, Robert Downey Jr., I mean, when we first reviewed this, we said, why is he in this film? But the th And he's probably the best thing in it, but that's not enough it's, reason to see it. It's a strange thing, having... Uh, I finally got around to watch it last week. Um, basically, Robert Downey Jr.'s character is so... You can't root for him in the slightest. He's so evil. He... Basically, the guy's on the road trip with Zach Galifianakis. Yeah. Yeah, finally got his surname right. Uh, as opposed to calling Zach Hangover. Um, <laughs> he, he's annoying and he plays as part of the idiot very well. And But Robert Downey Jr., rather than... You have more sympathy for the idiot because Robert Downey Jr. abandons him, like, attacks him, and he's so mean to this poor bloke that after a while you think, I don't like Robert Downey Jr., I don't really care if he gets to see his child, child's birth. Because he's just such a horrible... There's no redeeming features about his character. Where do you stand on planes, trains and automobiles, then? Because Robert Downey Jr., from how you've described it, seems to be standing in for the Steve Martin role. I think that had more heart. I think the fact when uh, when it came, when the big revelation sort of came together on the, the, the reason John Candy is as he is and mm -hmm. how that worked, I thought that worked a lot better. There's, there's a similar sort of thing on this in that uh, it's, it's fairly early on where Zach Galifianakis' character reveals that like, he'd just come back from his dad's funeral and he wants to drive across the, to the Grand Canyon and stuff like that, and it doesn't really have the same heart to it as yeah. that one did. It's, you can see what it's trying to do. Basically, it, sh it should just be called Planes, Trains and Automobiles and just remake, just, just admit that they're trying to remake it. But as I say, it's a strange one that for comedy, you, you kind of just to hate kind of hate both characters <laughs> yes. and uh, root for like the, there's the bit where they get arrested by the Mexican uh, border police and you can think just lock them up <laughs> just end the film now locked up and let's go yeah, right for the second as many weeks we could be drifting into deliverance territory again <laughs> uh, number three then let's let's leave that uh, yeah let's, let's not talk about deliverance again uh, it's London Boulevard which looks really really good as yeah it's kind of it's it's a flashy gangster film from William Monon who is directing, he also wrote Martin Scorsese's Departed, which was itself a remake of the Japanese film Internal Affairs. Um, and it, it's, it, the biggest comparison with this is a film, have you seen Layer Cake? Yes. Which is the film that's largely credited as um, kind of priming Daniel Craig for the role of James Bond, uh, directed by Matthew Vaughan, who made Stardust and Kickass. And that was a kind of, you know, f stylishly done, but ultimately slightly empty-headed gangster film in the sense that, you know, you'd seen the plot developments a lot of times before, and we didn't really need to see Sienna Miller with that little on. But, yeah. um... It was very much, it was, it was, it was in the, the aftermath of Lockstock, it was like... It was like cockney. It was yeah, because I mean, yeah, because Matthew Vaughan started out his career producing Guy Ritchie films, which yeah. is you know as about as low as you can get. Um, but the comparison, I think, it, in the same way, it's going to be kind of unremarkable, but it's you know technically stylish, and uh, apparently Kieran Knightley's quite good in it. 
Yeah, the only thing I can say from watching it, and I watched um, Colin Farrell interviewed on Graham Norton show a couple of weeks ago, his accent is all over the shop. <laughs> he's trying to say to him, he's not he's not playing a proper cockney, he's playing like estuary England sort of accent. Cold blimey, Mary Poppins. <laughs> I've just got out of Pinchinville prison. But it's, 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 Chim so, Chiminy. it's so weird. He should have just stuck, he should have just done it as Irish and then that, otherwise that, even in the trailer, that's distracting. And I think if you sat and watched that, you'd be thinking going, no, is it Middlesbrough? No. He's Yorkshire? No. Yeah, I think the biggest piece of advice is don't try and do Cockney when you're in the same room as Ray Winston because, you know, you'll go, okay, that's how you do it and that's somebody acting. Bet in play. Nah. I'll rip your head off. <laughs> <laughs> um, what's next? Uh, number two, Unstoppable. I'll defer to you because you've seen Unstoppable. Yes, uh, Unstoppable, which is a film I watched the day that I got hit by a lorry, which I suppose is ironic. <laughs> the lorry wouldn't stop. Um, so maybe I should have went to see something called The Safe Journey Home <laughs> instead. Um, Planes, trains and automobiles. True. I wouldn't like <laughs> fancy getting hit by a plane. I don't think the course I would have took that. <laughs> anyway, the, um, it's, it's, it's just pure, it's pure excitement. It's, in my, it's one of the best action films I've seen in years. It, it kind of took me back to, in the 90s when they did lots of action films, there wasn't much CGI on the go. You had stuntmen doing everything like that. And that, not to say that there is uses of uh, CGI throughout the film, but there is just it as elements of good old-fashioned stuntmen sort of getting involved and hanging off the bottom of trains. There's a good relationship between Denzel Washington and Chris Pine. I think he he's going to go on a, a lot bigger things. He was good in Star Trek, mm -hmm. and he's he's just, he just sort of keeps it going on this one. And I say it's, it's a Tony Scott film. He does all that, that sort of stuff. I believe did he do Top Gun? Am I right in thinking? Yes, yeah, he did. So it's, it's, it's in that sort of vein. And as far as I'm aware, the sequel to that is now in development hell, which is good because <laughs> Top Gun is no good at all. Well, it's technically yeah. well shot, but just you no know, rubbish messages. Mm. But yeah, so if you if you want to see, say if you want if you not, not fancying the next film, which uh, which is kind of blown everything else at the cinema, and you just want a pure popcorn film, 90 minutes long. Just action from start to finish. It doesn't have any big setup. It's just like, bam, off we go. Just go and say this. Better than speed? Yes. Really? Yeah. Oh, interesting choice. Yeah, I mean, I th I'm, I'm tempted to go and see it. I mean, I'm not the biggest Tony Scott fan, and I think that... You oh, know, yeah, you, ha it's, you have to leave your brain outside the cinema door and just go, yeah, and, uh, oh, big train, go smash. <laughs> but you just have to... <laughs> it's, it's, but if you, if you can get into that mindset, you will love it. Yeah. I mean, out of the Scott Brothers, I'm much more of a Ridley fan, so um, we'll see. I might catch it on DVD on a lonely night. Yeah. Uh, number one, there's a little wizard film. I can't remember, yes. really remember the name. Small, oddball, quirky film. No, is any going to happen? Percy Jackson? No. <laughs> no, no. It's uh, Benjamin Snellgrass. No. Um, it's Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 1. And by all accounts, it's a good film. I mean, there is, there is a general consensus that, yeah, it's pretty good, although it's not up there with Prisoner of Azkaban, which is the best. The big question that's kind of divided the critics that I've been reading is whether or not it stands up as a film on its own right, because there's the whole argument about if you need to see all the previous instalments to understand it, is it a proper film? And also, because they've split the last book, does it just kind of feel like... Uh, I mean, I was listening to someone on the radio yesterday saying it was like watching an episode of a TV miniseries where you knew there was more stuff to come and you wanted the second part yeah. immediately afterwards. I think it's uh, one, one of the things I've had with the criticisms being levied is it could have done on a, like, at the start of a previously on Harry Potter and a bit of a catch-up because it just sort of bam you straight in the action so if you've not seen any of them I'd, to be honest I'd, I'd be surprised if anyone went in without any sort of knowledge of it yeah because uh, it's been such a behemoth for the past seven years yeah um, it's like the old joke about Americans didn't go and see Henry V because they hadn't seen parts <laughs> one to four <laughs> <laughs> so yeah it's uh it could have done with one of them but it's 
I say, and the thing which is just, as I mentioned last time, just annoying me, the fact that it's just everyone goes, ooh, it's dark. Ooh, it's a dark film. Ooh, dark. And it's like, is there anything other than it's dark you've got to say about it? Otherwise, I'll just watch something really, really depressing, like a Swedish art house film if I want something that's dark. <laughs> yeah, don't. <laughs> no, I mean, let the right one in, it's dark, but that's not depressing, so, mm. no. Don't just tar everything with the same brush. No, no, gonna gonna tar everything with the same brush. <laughs> just one big brush. Well, I shall fight you on let the right one in. First, let the right one in. Well, first, the deer hunter and that one in. This this is not going well. This comeback. My parents saw the deer hunter on the honeymoon. Huh? Blimey! Yeah. My dad's the ultimate romantic. <laughs> yeah, and let's just move on because otherwise I'll just rant and we'll waste time. Okay. Yeah. So, anything else on Harry Potter? Uh. Not much else to say, really. I mean, I think that, like I say, it's okay, but you you should only go and see it if you've seen the previous instalments. And because I've only seen up to Azkaban, it's not pulling me in. Yeah, I'm saying so I'm kind of. I never thought it's. I'm looking forward to Narnia, and um, what's it? Tron and Jack Black's Skull of Travel because it'll start to knock this out of the cinema. Otherwise, this would just stay here forever. It'll be like this year's Avatar. It's mm. just gonna be one of the ones. Let's roll the Christmas. Because Christmas is possibly not this. Is it the biggest time of the year for cinemas? Uh, summer, summer, summer then yeah. Christmas, I think it is. But I'm, no, it varies depending on the films. Yeah, you do get a lot of good films coming. Because this summer was a rather underperforming thing. Because loads of films that were expected to take money barely made their budgets back. Yeah, it's uh, but, uh, it's been a strange one, shall we say? Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to legacy. I'm looking forward to. I'm not um, sold on Voyage of the Dawn Treader because Michael Apted's a bit of a. Uh, nuts and bolts director but we'll see yeah I, I couldn't i watched the first one couldn't stand haven't seen the second one and have no real desire to see the, any of the other ones you just want to see it take money rather than yeah i just it. want to see it knock harry potter at the cinema so we can talk about something else really <laughs> so, so what we'll do is we'll stick on a bit of david bowie and then we will be back with this week's cult film which is they live from the heart of the district this is lionheart radio should all songs end with a bit of saxophone at the end <laughs> Interesting idea. I mean, I don't think Comfortably Numb is a fil is a, a song that would end very well with a bit of sound. Right? Be a bit of a shift, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Anyway, um, right, this week's cult film is They Live, and I will hand across the reins to Daniel. Yeah, They Live, late 80s uh, sci-fi action comedy based loosely on a short story by Ray Nelson called Eight O'Clock in the Morning, uh, directed by John Carpenter, who is widely regarded as one of the great horror directors of the late 70s and 80s, made things like uh, Dark Star, Halloween, The Fog, Escape from New York, and the brilliant remake of The Thing. And the thing is that after he made um, a film called Christine, which is a kind of Stephen King adaptation about a possessed car, which is, no, it's sort of all right, he attempted to kind of diversify because he didn't want to be typecast as a horror director. So he made Starman, which is essentially E.T. for clever people, and got Jeff Bridges an Oscar nomination for his yep. performance, and that's a very good film. But then he sort of went off the rails with two films. He made Big Trouble in Little China, which is... Um, a kind of martial arts film with Kurt Russell about an underground Chinese kingdom, which is a, you know, sub Indiana Jones with bits of Michael Cimino's Year of the Dragon, which is an unforgivably bad film. Um, and then he made uh, Prince of Darkness, which a lot of people think is quite scary, but it is essentially kind of second-rate Quatermass experiment with a bit of H.P. Lovecraft. And, no, the special effects are all right, and it's got Alice Cooper in, but other than that, it's not much good. There's a, there's, he has a strange bond with Kurt Russell, doesn't he? Yeah, I mean, He's there's... Just, <laughs> some, some actors, if you look at Russell Crowe and Ridley Scott, they're just they're kind of paired together, and I know that Leonardo DiCaprio's kind of stealing, <laughs> stealing Ridley Scott away from Russell. <laughs> um... But yeah, it's, a, it's and I'd say majority of the films feature Kurt Russell, don't they? Uh, the, he's worked with him five or six times. Yeah, I mean, he's and sometimes that works really well, like The Thing, in which he's terrific. Mm -hmm. But by the time you get to Escape from L.A., when he's kind of 
surfing down what used to be the main street in Washington chasing baddies, you think, no, <laughs> not interested. Take the eye patch off. Um, so, we'll set up the plot and then you can, um, because you had a couple of queries you wanted to put to me before we get started. The plot is you have a character called John Nadder, who's played by real-life wrestler Rowdy Roddy Piper. That's Rowdy Roddy Piper. Christened Rowdy. First name Rowdy, second name Roddy. Yes. <laughs> uh, he's a homeless, unemployed construction worker who is moving from town to town looking for work. He settles in a homeless camp, which is next door to a church, and in the church a group of strange men are plotting and shifting mysterious cardboard boxes around. The church subsequently gets demolished by riot police and burnt to the ground. Um, He's walking to work one day when he finds one of these boxes in a, a, a trash can. It's discovered it's full of sunglasses. He uh, walks out into the street, puts one of the pairs of sunglasses on, at which point the whole world goes to black and white. Sorry, not the microphone. <laughs> and he discovers that the whole world has been infiltrated by aliens, which are invisible to the naked eye, but are controlling human beings through subliminal advertising. And I think that's pretty much all the setup yeah. that you need. So. It's always just stuff like, obey. And uh, this is your God written on yeah, the Yeah, there's, like there's a scene where he's walking down the main street with, uh, and like an advertising banner, and it's uh, when he's looking at it just with, his, just with the naked eye, it's just a picture of a woman in a bikini saying, you know, come to the Caribbean. And he puts the sunglasses on, and it's replaced with just a blank warning saying, marry and reproduce. Mm -hmm. and, they're all, and all the magazines have things like watch TV and sleep just blasted across the pages. Definitely, yeah. I thought it was... Uh, the, the 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 start bit where the the builders is uh, basically struggling to look and find work and stuff is particularly pertinent now. I know it was yes. it wasn't made with now in mind, but it just it kind of struck home. It is relevant. It sort of come back around as such. Yeah, it is. It is a film that was you know, made in the middle of an economic decline. Mm -hmm. So, the interesting thing about it is it's a very interesting mix of genres. I mean, the first forty five minutes of it before the sunglasses go on, so to speak, it kind of plays out. Not like an action film or a comedy, but more like a western. You have, um, you know, Roddy Piper's character is effectively the man with no name. You know, he's, he's physically and psychologically out of place, and he comes into a community which he doesn't really understand. And all the kind of people in the homeless camp are, they're like people in the Cattle Kingdom and all those cowboy films where it's just going on habit and instinct and know, may not know much about such and such, but I know what I like. Yeah. And... When the sunglasses go on, the film very rapidly becomes science fiction. I mean, like I say, you can reference all this back to things like 1984, though I think it's closer in the end to Brave New World, the Aldous Huxley book, which is a terrific book, and we'll come on to that a bit later. And then there is, you know, comedy elements, or at least humour laced throughout, including the infamous fight sequence, which again, will come on just just a second. But the film that it's closest to out of Carpenter's back catalogue is Dark Star. Have you seen Dark Star? I haven't, no. It's the film that he, st that he started his career off, and he co-wrote it and co-acted in it with Dan O'Bannon, who would later write the screenplay for Alien. And it's about these, it's a kind of offbeat sci-fi comedy about uh, four goofy astronauts who travel through the galaxy basically blowing up rogue planets. And many people kind of saw it as, it's, it's, it's a very interesting bridge between the kind of old-fashioned dystopian science fiction because it takes the mick out of Solaris in 2001 but on the other hand there's so much stuff that you think Star Wars nicked from this I mean including the principal idea of it's a spaceship that can blow up planets go yeah. figure yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah I mean it, this, and I think the, one of the big problems with They Live is it can't quite decide what film it wants to be in the end because there are some bits where it says I want to be an action film so you have bottomless magazines and all the machine guns and you know the baddies will shoot hundreds and hundreds of bullets and not hit them and then it's one shot and bang they're dead yeah uh, sometimes it wants to be scary. I mean, the scenes of the 
the riot police destroying a homeless camp are quite scary in a kind of assault on precinct 13 kind of way and the aliens you know, are freaky when you first see them and sometimes it wants to be funny there's a fantastic scene where Roddy Piper is is being chased by police. He's got a shotgun in his hand and he backs into uh, what he thinks is safety. It's actually he's wandered into a bank. So everyone thinks he's holding up the bank and he stands there with the sunglasses on looking at the aliens in front of him and says, I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. <laughs> which is one of the best action lines of the 1980s. Yeah, you wouldn't get away with it now, but in the 1980s, it's, it's spot on, isn't it? Absolutely. Definitely. Um, you had a query about the... Uh, the score that you wanted to yeah, bring Yeah, uh, the score, the director does his own score, um, which, is it, is it unique? Is he one of the only ones that, to do this? Um, certainly his, his soundtracks are unique in the sense that they don't sample from his own work and so forth, but he, because he is famous, but he does do the soundtracks for most of his films, because mm -hmm. of course he famously wrote the theme for Halloween, you know, in, in 5-4 time, which is incredibly difficult to play. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's strange, because I think it's, it, po it points at the, because it's it's set in the 80s, so you've got a lot of synthesizers, and it's just very. There's bits where he's walking on the streets, and, he, and some of the action points it's underscored by just this this boom, kind of boom, drone, boom, yeah. Boom. And it kind of just thinks if the music's boom, not really boom, bringing you with it, boom. it's hard to get hard to get any buy-in. Yeah, think. I think that what well, I actually think the score is it's it's not his best work. It's not up there with Halloween and the Thing, but it is. It's interesting because it's kind of like a bluesy riff because there are scenes as well of Roy Piper playing a harmonica and it, it, it sort of fits with the whole blue-collar feel of the film because it is a film which absolutely stands by the working man who's kind of... because a lot of these people are kind of hard-working and they won't take handouts on principle because, you know, it, this is America, you don't do that sort yeah. of thing. Um, this brings us on quite neatly to one of the film's most famous scenes, which is the extended fight between Roddy Piper and Keith David in the car park, which was actually parodied shot for shot in South Park episode Cripple Fight, you know, when you have Jimmy yes. and Timmy fighting each other. And at the time, this was probably quite... I mean, it's, I say probably because I wasn't... No, I was born in the year that this film was made, so I didn't see them make it. At the time, this was probably realistic in the sense that you do feel that people are getting hurt, and there are there is some good kind of sound effect dubbing and bruise makeup on it. Yeah. So you, you know, you see all the blood coming out, and you think actually that's quite good. But I mean, certainly a lot better than the fight scenes in Big Trouble in Little China, in which it's just you know somebody kind of stares, go Haw! and then some kind of fake uh, <laughs> laser beams will come out of their fingers, and you think no, not <laughs> interested. But looking at it now, it is a bit silly. I mean, it goes on for the best part of six minutes, and it's like you're going to get up again after he's hit your head on the car for the second time? Yeah. Come on. It just wouldn't happen. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, as I say, it was kind of, uh, you, I was watching you just think, go, oh, stay down, stay down. <laughs> just, just stay down. But it, it, it did, I suppose it works because there's a scene after that where, uh, after they've, they've beaten each other up and they, they sort of get back and they become mates as such, uh, yes. and they're walking to a motel, and they just walk in, they both look absolutely knackered. And it's just thought, I thought it works in that respect because they both just look like, God, I need to lie down. <laughs> we shouldn't have done that. And I think, I, I suppose it, it plays for that for the element of sort of a little bit of comedy. But I think, yeah, you're right what you're saying about it. It didn't really, it was a bit of four seasons in one day sort of film. It was, the, the aliens aren't really, I never played as particularly scary. There's no like jump out bits, I wouldn't have thought. Like nothing. That no, it's not a shock. Yeah. Um, and to say it's, it borders in the territory of just like commando where you know the, the big gun uh, that's yeah that's, i think that's a bit unfair although commando is kind of good honest stupid fun mm. 
There's also, I mean, just one more point before I come on to the good stuff about the film. There is, um, there is an odd bit of casting. I think Roddy Piper, who, like I say, started out his career as a wrestler, is pretty good. I mean, certainly I prefer his performance to the performances of Hulk Hogan in things like Suburban Commando, even though that's got the great line from Christopher Lloyd, you know, I was frozen today, <laughs> which has become an internet meme <laughs> in its own right. But there is a very odd quality in that um, Meg Foster is cast in the main female role. And um, I don't know about you, I mean, I don't want to give the plot away, but she's got this kind of reptilian quality. Did you think... She was scarier than any of the aliens. Yeah, but did you think, <laughs> I know which side she's on before she's even said a word? Yeah, I thought it was one because he uses her to get away from the police at one stage and you just think, she, he's just gone off with the wrong person. Yes. Uh, but no, it's... Uh, yes, quite apart from the fact that she hits him over the head with a bottle and pushes him through a place guard window. Yeah, but, but even before you... But yeah, she, the relationship did go off to a good start. She has, she has, she has uh, an evil-looking face, shall we say. Yeah, and that might be makeup or it might just be her, but... Yeah. <laughs> if she's listening. The thing, so there are little problems with They Live. I mean, like I say, it's it, generically it's it's kind of a mismatch. It's it, like Dark Star. It can't quite decide whether it wants to be scary, funny, or just good natured. I mean, there are odd bits of casting, and the score isn't brilliant. But at the heart of it is a very smart, interesting film about mass media, about advertising, and about the way in which the working man is manipulated in a way which benefits the rich. It's a film which very cleverly tricks us, because the first 45 minutes essentially makes us suspicious of anyone who is intellectual. There's the opening sequence where um, Roddy Piper is passing a blind preacher who's pontificating in the street, and our reaction is, yeah, I heard that all before, it's not relevant, stop lecturing me. Yeah. And similarly, there's um, a bearded man who keeps interrupting the TV programmes and giving out a headaches, and you just think, yeah, just... No, I want to watch this, get out of my way. So that when the sunglasses go on, you think, actually, I've been rooting for the whole s for the wrong side, and <laughs> these guys actually know what they're talking about. Because when the church gets destroyed, you think, well, yeah, I didn't want the camp destroyed, but those people kind of had it coming. And then you think, oh, actually, these guys were right all along, what have we done? Yeah. Um, it's visually very interesting. I mean, the, the big trick with the sunglasses is that when um, you're looking at the world with a naked eye, it's in colour, but when the sunglasses are on, it's in black and white, which you can sort of trace back to things like um, A Matter of Life and Death, the Palin Pressburger film. There's also a version of The Secret Garden where only the garden is shown in colour and everything else is in black and white. So you, you can, it's an interesting kind of uh, way of doing that. It also has the side effect of making everything look like a 1950s B-movie. Yeah. Um, right down to the fact that the aliens look like kind of men in rubber suits. <laughs> and you might think that's a bit of a kind of cheap thing, but actually within the film it sort of makes logical sense because the whole point about the aliens is that they are infiltrating by kind of getting people to be blind to them. And if that's the way they work, then you don't really need to worry about keeping your Im being image conscious. So yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm just uh, there's a good point where there's one of the aliens that she's like doing her hair, and he just goes, "That's like putting perfume on a pig," <laughs> <laughs> which is a good line. <laughs> Quite unfair to the women involved. There is also, I mean, the film is actually very anti-television to the extent. I mean, Carpenter was one of the first low-budget filmmakers to pioneer the use of anamorphic lenses, and he was very interested in widescreen. And in the case of They Live, he shot a lot of the action at the extreme ends of the frame, which means that when you come to show it on television, because the normal way is if you take a widescreen film in those days, which is to clip the yeah. far bits of the frame off, so you couldn't really show it on television without getting it horribly squished. And so it's a kind of, it's a kind of barbed attack on on the nature of television in its very essence but the film is centrally about the idea of how subliminal advertising works and just how shallow and unsustainable consumer society is so like we said at the start 
you have all these advertising slogans which are just stripped away as being cynical instructions like obey, marry and reproduce, buy, consume, sleep. Yeah. You know, all the kind of things that are the center of capitalism. And the title comes from a piece of graffiti which is on the wall of the church, They Live, We Sleep. Yeah. And there is a running mention um, throughout of earth being treated essentially as the alien's third world so we kind of consume as we are being consumed and i think that's a very interesting angle to take on it yeah it's not it's uh, uh, people shouldn't be if people are listening it sounds like it's you're gonna get preached at for 90 minutes it's not done and it's not it's not only things saying oh god we should all do this we should do that or it's it's just it's it, unobtrusive yeah yeah. It's not. Uh, it's not. It's not like a lecture. Yeah, I mean, the in terms of the works that it owes a debt to, the main literary works it owes a debt to are things like *Brave New World*, the Aldous Huxley book, and there's a book by Neil Postman, who's a media theorist, called *Amusing Ourselves to Death*, which Roger Waters based his *Amused to Death* album on. And both of those are about the idea of people voluntarily giving up their freedoms for the sake of status or acceptance, or in the case of *Brave New World*, sexual pleasure. And it's the whole idea of, you know, rather than the Orwellian version of the future, which is somehow a big government is going to come about, which is going to, you know, lecture us all. Mm -hmm. Huxley basically saw through and said, actually, what's going to happen is we're going to get richer, we're going to get fatter, and eventually this will just be eroded away. And I think, you know, it's, it's a very interesting way of conveying the idea of people are still buying into capitalism and into status, despite the fact that ultimately everyone's getting poorer. And it's a very interesting way to explore that contradiction. In terms of its sci-fi heritage, the thing it is closest to is Invasion of the Body Snatchers, particularly the 70s version directed by Philip Kaufman with Donald Sutherland, which, like I said um, a couple of weeks ago, is very scary, especially in its ending. Because mm -hmm. it's, it's a very political film which has the, in which the aliens have essentially infiltrated the upper class. And it takes the whole Body Snatchers thing of... You know, you get turned into aliens if you fall asleep, and says, well, let's not have it as literal sleep, let's have it as metaphorical sleep, so being blind to the idea that you know, we're actually all slaves. Yeah. Like I said, it isn't a perfect film by any means, it's a bit silly in places, and it isn't nearly as tense as it could be, but it's John Carpenter's best film since the thing, and as action films go, it's really smart and really good fun. Yeah. Recommended to all. Absolutely. Yeah, the certificate's an 18, but it's... Yeah, I mean, the it's, it, that's for violence. I mean, yeah. The violence isn't that bad. I mean, I think it's because Die Hard used to be an 18, and that's now a 15. Yeah. So I think this would probably get downgraded if it was resubmitted. Yeah. So it's... Uh, I wouldn't worry about that if you, if you see if... if, you, if no. Because, uh, to be honest, if you're 15, 16-year-old lad, this would be awesome. Yeah, I mean, we're not we're not recommending you break the law, of course, but, but there's not there's not the kind of flesh ripping violence. That Bend you, it. Bend the law. Yes, but there's not the kind of flesh ripping violence that you get in Total Recall or something, where you have people getting their arms severed off or people with bolts being put through their necks or something. It's not no the Paul Verhoeven school of violence. Yeah, not uh, yes. recommend. And next week's film, a cult film, is going to be well because it's coming up to Christmas. We're going to um, kind of get the big one in before it's the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Right. Have you got the soundtrack for that for next week? I don't have the soundtrack for that, but I might be able to track down a little bit. Or I can treat you to a bit of uh, hot patootie, if you like. <laughs> do, do we need to leave the microphones on for that? Or is that some sort of... I'll just sing from a long way away. <laughs> Lying Hard Radio. Right, we... I think what we'll do is we'll just go straight into this week's new releases. Yeah, because we've got 15 minutes left. Um, shall we start with Monsters? We certainly shall. Um, debut film by Gareth Edwards, who is its writer, producer, director, cinematographer and visual effects. He comes from a background in special effects design. And there are every indication that this could do for him what District 9 did for Neil Blomkamp, and although this isn't backed by Peter Jackson in any way and it doesn't have a multi-million dollar budget. 
It is a low-budget monster film in the sense that it was made for less than half a million pounds. Although just because it's low-budget doesn't mean it's low-budget in yeah. inverted commas. We're not talking about a film which has got, you know, rocket ships on string <laughs> or monsters in bad rubber suits um, like, you know, the, the aliens in They Live. Or um, have you ever seen a John Landis film called Schlock? I haven't, no. John Landis' first film, in, in, it's, it's a parody of, you know, the Missing Link science fiction films where he's playing, a, it's, he's directing, but he's also a guy in a gorilla suit who kind of can't decide whether he's a man or an ape, and it's you know, <laughs> usual kind of Landis thing of bawdy, slightly adolescent humour, but it's quite good fun. Um, so the story of Monsters is there is a NASA deep space probe which has crash-landed on Earth and infected half of Mexico with alien monsters. There is a young photojournalist uh, who is commissioned by his wealthy employer to bring back the employer's daughter to the United States because she's stuck on the other side of Mexico. They try and go around um, the infected zone, as it's called, on a ferry, but that doesn't work. So they have to go through the middle of it and encounter all these kind of um, monsters. The thing to say about it is, first off, that it doesn't look like a film that was made with no money at all. And I was reading some, about some of the uh, the production details on Wikipedia last night. Other websites are available. But and, that's good. Yes, <laughs> or as comprehensive. Um, they were talking about some of the production, the fact that they were just, it was working with a seven-man crew, including the actors, and for the dolly shots where you'd normally have, you know, the camera running on a track or something, they actually just did it by driving along in a van with the camera surrounded by blankets to stop it shaking. So it is a film that's being made absolutely on the cheap. But it doesn't look like that, quite apart from the fact that it has you know, very good special effects design. I mean, the trailer, if you see it, doesn't give much away about the nature of the monsters, but the actual poster for it with a kind of octopus squid creature, yeah. there is you know, a certain clue in that. It's also got a very interesting political angle. I mean, like District 9, it is a film about kind of racism and immigration in the sense that, you know, there is a whole thing about crossing the US-Mexico border and there's a whole political thing going on at the moment about, you know, the big border fence and the Minutemen that's being constructed. Yeah, and how the, the aliens are inside Mexico as opposed to Mexicans are usually the illegal aliens coming to America, yeah, that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the director himself has said that it's more about, um, kind of, being used to war because the thing the central thing which is interesting about monsters is that it's it's a monster film which isn't a kind of oh look let's run away from the screaming monsters it's kind of set years after the invasion so mm -hmm. to speak so everyone's kind of got used to having them around and it's about kind of it the central thing is about just the relationship between this photojournalist and his employer's daughter kind of trying to muddle it through and i think that's a very kind of interesting creative decision to take yeah i a think if you're a fan of district nine you don't have any reason not to see this. Yeah, it's, um, there's also the, the doubt of whether Monsters refers to the actual aliens or because, as with most things where America is involved, there's just random airstrikes sent out by the Air Force yes. which are potentially doing more, more harm than good. So there's the issue of, is America the monster? Um, so there's all that sort of thing. But it's, 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 if you're expecting some like Cloverfield... I don't think it's going to be. You no. might be a bit disappointed, but and and when I went to see, there was a similar last week. There was a trailer for it, and it did edit together with predominantly the monster elements. Yeah, with like the cars dropping out of the skies, and you just think, ooh, are people going to? Because I knew before what about are people going to be disappointed if they could sit down and go. It's been, it's been an hour, there's not been any aliens on screen, stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that, because um, there is a trend nowadays for kind of making trailers which have nothing to do with the films. Did you see the trailer for The Road before it came out? Yes. Um, which made it look like a kind of post-apocalyptic action film, you know, Mad Max in, you know, in the cold winter. Mm -hmm. And then you watch The Road and you're thinking, actually, this is really slow and bleak and depressing, but in a good way. Yeah. So, yeah, I think, you know, Monsters is a very interesting film, but you shouldn't go in expecting a kind of Independence Day 
on a low budget sort of thing. It's it's much more kind of human drama, which just happens to have aliens. Yeah, in. if you want lots of big smashes and explosions, I'm sure Transformers Three will be out next year. <laughs> yes, I'm, no, the less publicity we give Transformers Three, the better the world will be. Right, uh, the next release is... Rare Exports, A Christmas Tale. Uh, this will put you in, this will put you, if you're putting your Christmas tree up this weekend, this will really set the mood up. Yeah. <laughs> Here's the thing, there is a long tradition of cult films, in the loosest sense, which are kind of Christmas set, but not in the festive spirit. I mean, um, see if any of these come to mind. Have you seen Black Christmas, the Bob Clark film, which is one of the first slasher movies? I haven't seen it, no, and, and got, uh, got a remake. The yeah, and the remake is terrible. But yeah. the, I mean, the original's not brilliant, but it's a kind of, you know, nuts and interesting slasher movie. There is also a film called Santa Claus Conquers the Martians, which is often voted one of the worst ever made. And is you know, it's the one where the Martians are a bit cheesed off because they can't celebrate Christmas, so they come down to Earth and kidnap Santa Claus. <laughs> and the film is notable only for the fact that it's got the same um, stock footage of aeroplanes which was shot specifically for Dr. Strangelove. So they kind of waited for Dr. Strangelove to come out and then just borrowed the stock footage <laughs> to use that. I mean, it's a, yeah, also, all, all, thinking on the more kind of sophisticated, I mean, you could even argue that Terry Gilliam's Brazil is a Christmas film because the opening scene of that where you know, the whole buttle-tuttle error takes place where there's a family at Christmas yeah. and um, then the special forces come down to the ceiling and kidnap the kid's father and you think, okay, it's festive spirit. <laughs> yeah, I, I wouldn't classify that as the same sort of thing as it's a wonderful life. Or, no. Or Christmas Carol, anything like that. Yes. So this is a Finnish um, kind of horror, comedy, maybe fantasy film. I don't know how you'd, you'd categorise it. It's retelling the Father Christmas story. And the thing is, in the Scandinavian version of the Father Christmas story, Father Christmas is sent to punish the wicked rather than give presents to the good. Yeah. As far as I can gather. And so the story is there's an archaeologist digging in the mountains who find a sacred grave, you know, with somebody buried in ice. It turns out the guy who was buried in ice is actually still alive. And they thaw him out, after which people start to go missing, including children. And it turns out that this man is a vessel for the supernatural being from which the, the kind of Santa Claus myth originates. So in terms of the thing it reminds me of, I mean, obviously the whole um, thing of discovering this horrible being in ice owes something to John Carpenter's The Thing, although that's a remake of a Howard Hawks film. See, I was thinking California Man. <laughs> really? I haven't <laughs> seen that. What's that about? It's, it's this really bad one with Brendan Fraser as a caveman, which the thaw out in the 90s and he goes to high school. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like Captain Caveman the movie. It is pretty much, yeah. Are you a fan of Captain Caveman when you were here? Uh, no. <laughs> I can't say it, no. No. Very good, but no slightly naff <laughs> so there's the because there's the whole thing about in john carpenter's the thing which is one of his best films you have this this creature who is stranded in ice and then is released and basically causes humans to turn on each other because the thing is all about paranoia the thing it also reminded me of is there is a film called ernest saves christmas which is rubbish in itself but there is a film within a film in it called christmas sleigh the tagline <laughs> of which is he knows if you've been good or bad and he's got a chainsaw <laughs> Which <laughs> just sounds completely irresistible. The thing I'm going to say about this, it might be less than the sum of its parts. I mean, it's based on a short film of the same name, which was made about seven years ago by the same people. And there are attempts towards the end of it to make kind of political points, because they end up putting this being who may or may not be Santa Claus in a red suit and trying to auction him off on eBay. So it's kind of making a point about the consumerization of Christmas. But I think if you're going to go and see it, it's kind of... It's a kind of like an incidental but good addition to the kind of also ran nasty side of Christmas movies. Just so we're getting, uh, just in case, people, just to cl clarify, if the Santa Claus character is the kids are disappearing. Yes. Are kids being murdered or is he? As, uh, uh, let's, I'm going to have to say it. Is he down as the old paedophile? 
Is it that sort of thing? Well, or? it's a 15 certificate, so I don't think paedophilia would be involved. Right. And certainly, if it is, it wouldn't be explicitly talked about. I mean, I don't think it's... I mean, it's certainly not in hard candy territory, let's put it like that. Yeah, I was just going to say, we better clarify that, because I see ass opens a whole new can of worms with people. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I don't think the film is about paedophilia or anything, but, um... Because it, I mean, like I say, the whole there are many things in the original Grimm's fairy tales which are about children going missing and that have got nothing to do with sex. And yeah. I think this is broadly in the tradition of that. So I don't think you should get kind of hot under the collar about that sort of thing. Yeah, if, I suppose if it was, it probably would have been it would have been more widely publicised, basically by the Daily Mail saying this is outrageous, it should be banned, yes. blah blah blah. But uh, all right, just thought I'd just thought I'd ask the no, question. No, that's, that's good to clear it up. I hadn't considered that in a massive amount of depth, but uh, right, we have six minutes and twenty-five seconds. Let's left. belt through a couple then. Megamind, which is the latest digimation from DreamWorks, from the director of Madagascar One and Two, advertised everywhere. This film isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Um, story is story. Um, <laughs> Megamind, who's played by Will Ferrell bad start. Um, he's an alien who is the sole survivor of his planet which gets destroyed at the start, which rips off Superman. Exactly. Uh, although it doesn't have Marlon Brando in, unfortunately. That would have made it a bit better. Uh, he's the sole survivor of his planet. He ends up in a prison for the criminally gifted where he gets out and tries to get his own back on Metro Man, who is played by Brad Pitt. And he instantly thinks you could have done something else, Charlie. Yeah. I mean, um, was it Angelina's turn to get the good film? Were you stuck with the kids? I don't know. There's a, there's a definite thing where ad actors, uh, big name actors, do stuff for their kids. Hmm. There's the Robert Rodriguez doing Spy Kids sort of thing where they do, I think they just try to, maybe just say, oh, look, this is what daddy does for his job and then the kids can enjoy it because the kids, well, uh, Brad Pitt's kids probably wouldn't want to sit down and watch Babel, will they? <laughs> no, probably not. Or, or the assassination of Jesse James. Yes. Although that is a terrific film. The thing is, I mean, we, we talked about DreamWorks a little bit in the uh, first part of the program. The thing is, when they started out with Shrek, which is a great film, the whole thing about DreamWorks was that, you know, the kids would get it on one level, the adults, in the sense that they, they'd laugh at all the kind of the, the, the fart jokes and the, the action sequences and so forth. The adults would get all the kind of, you know, sparky jokes about Disney and you know, playing with the cliches, and you'd kind of meet somewhere in the middle so you could all enjoy it. And as the Shrek series and DreamWorks has gone on as a company, that's kind of putrefied a bit and turned into this whole idea of using digimations as a kind of babysitting service, so you kind of have the adults coming, bringing their kids to it, and the kids kind of enjoying it in a disposable way, but the main reason it exists is for adults to basically sit back and enjoy the, the voice talents of, um, you know, celebrity casting. Yeah. And I, and I mean, with, with Shrek, that's fine, because the Shrek stories were always, certainly up until the third one was always kind of interesting and quite funny. But with this, it kind of think, well, that kind of defeats the point of a family film, because surely there has to be something for everyone, rather than just, oh, we'll put something in for the kids, but actually we're trying to bring the adults in. See, I wonder whether kids' films today, when we were growing up, uh, well, I growing up, they're, they're a lot more made in, like, the 90s, 30s, like, stuff like Jungle Book, uh, Snow White. Um, Garden. Yeah, they're all, they're just aimed purely at kids, and it's just purely about blown kids' minds and uh, giving them things, and the adults just had to put up with it because it wasn't aimed at them. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas nowadays, everything's kind of half and half. That Are, we, are kids getting exposed to jokes which they shouldn't get exposed to? Uh, and they're not going to get the same. Not going to get the same messages from films that we used to get in the generations before. So it kind of just seems like, oh well, 
we put some uh, adult jokes. We'll put, a, we'll put a Godfather reference in, and then the adults. Will yeah, that sort of Shark Tale being one of the big offenders of that. I mean, I think that, I mean, we haven't. We because we've only got three minutes left. We can't really take the time to go into kind of big rant about the decline of family cinema. But I think the whole of Hollywood has become demographified in the sense that you have kind of films which are made specifically for a, an audience of only a few years and of a particular gender or even economic background. Mm -hmm. So I think that. But there are I mean, examples of genuinely good family films still being made, like Gillian Fellows' most recent effort from time to time, which has you know, got him and Maggie Smith in, mm -hmm. which is interesting. So, so there are still those sort of films being made, they're just not getting the, distrib the distribution that they deserve. I suppose the, the Nanny McPhee series was... Uh, yeah, that's a good example. Yeah, um, and I well, the Harry Potter film started off that, but then, as I say, they went dark. <laughs> 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 they went dark and went rogue on us, and they said, I went, kids can't go, because I think the new yeah. one's like a 12A. Yeah, so, um, well, which means you can see it if you're eight and over, but if, as long as you go with the parent. Yeah. Uh, let's just wrap up for these quickly. Um, so, Megamind, it's kind of, in the same way as Despicable Me, it might be okay, but it is massively derivative. I mean, quite apart from the fact that you have the exploding uh, planet from the Superman, you have the League of Superheroes from The Incredibles, which wasn't that good in the first place. You've got the kind of central character as a Dr. Evil ripoff, so Austin Powers, and it is derivative on Monster vs. Aliens in its design, so... It's kind of like, yeah, it's okay, but there's nothing special at all in that. I think the fact that not a lot of other stuff's been released because of the Harry Potter, um, in, in, which will hit the same demographic, I think uh, yeah. it'll still be there. It'll still make a lot of money. Yeah, quite possibly. The only other thing we should perhaps mention is um, Secretariat, which I, when we talked about this programme, I was calling Seabiscuit. <laughs> and that is probably an indication of how forgettable it is. Disney-backed biopic of, apparently, the greatest horse who ever existed, uh, who competed for the Triple Crown in the 70s in, Amer in America, written by uh, Randall Wallace, who is the writer behind, no, amazingly subtle works as Braveheart and Pearl Harbor. So you think... Not subtle at all. <laughs> so the story is, I mean, there, it's, you know, it's, you know exactly how it's going to play out. It's, you know, the horse has to run the three races to win the Triple Crown, and it's about the people who are kind of owning him and training him and so forth. There is a comparison with Seabiscuit, which was actually nominated for Best Picture, believe it or not, in the sense that it is cliche-ridden, it is a triumph over adversity film in the most boring way. That must have been a slow year at the Oscars. Well, because <laughs> everyone kind of knew Return of the King was going to win. Yeah. So, no, they kind of, the four... Uh, other ones kind of well, didn't really stand a chance. It is cliche written, and there is hammy acting from amongst others John Malkovich, who plays his mad trainer, and James Cromwell, for, who is the uh, the uh, farmer character in Babe, who plays a really nice millionaire. <laughs> it's like, yes, they really exist. And it's, it might be the kind of film where you watch on a kind of Sunday afternoon, and, in, and it's a good for an unintentional laugh, but otherwise, just not not bothered to be honest. <laughs> yeah it just it just it will it will just you will watch it and you will forget it within 20 minutes yeah it definitely yeah. there's always a, there's a worry that john malkovich is becoming a sort of typecast as a zany i don't worry about that at the minute but uh never mind anyway yes. we'll have to wrap up we've got 20 seconds left film of the week monsters monsters so that's out everywhere that's not one it, we did mention it was kind of an independent feel of it but it is being released nationally if that's not your sort of thing go see the american or london boulevard next week's cult film is the rocky horror picture show yep and feeling that i'm gonna i'm gonna put a shout out for unstoppable big train go smash yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's time for the news see you later Bye. Lion Heart Radio, the voice of Northumberland.